The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. So we don't know what she might have stolen in terms of data. Uh, and if she did, I mean, one would expect that over 10 years, almost 10 years, she would have had access to, to well, somebody's left behind laptop. But even if that were not true, the risk of somebody knowing intimately so many officers at NATO and being able to create a profile for them or to pass on such raw information to the GRU profilers, that is a, a significant security risk because that's how people are recruited based on their profiles, based on their weaknesses, based on, for example, somebody not being able to pay their membership fee um, for the charitable organization. And then the jury would know that that person is in financial trouble at a particular moment and so on and so forth. So we don't know exactly what the damage is. We just know that the risk is very substantial. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 6, 2022. Late last month, investigative journalists at Bellingcat and partner organizations published a story exposing the identity of a Russian spy named Maria Adela Kufel Trevera, who, over the course of 10 years, had charmed her way into the social circles of NATO members in Naples. I sat down with Christo Grozev, Bellingcat's lead Russia investigator, who walked me through this stranger-than-fiction spy thriller. We discussed how Maria Adela found herself courting NATO officers in Italy, how Bellingcat's team exposed the truth, often at great personal risk to themselves, and how this story can help us understand the state of Russian tradecraft. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 6th. Bellingcat's Christo Grozev on socialite, widow, jeweler, spy. Christo, I wanted to start with a question which may sound simple to someone who hasn't read the investigation yet, but is quite complex in reality. So first, who is Maria Adela Kufelt-Rivera, and where does her story start? She's a Russian spy uh, with the subset description of a, an illegal spy. That's a long-term sleeper spy who is sent under a cover identity, a backstory, which uh, the Russians called a legend to a different country. Um, she gets usually, or they get their education there uh, so that they can create a credible background of people who can provide references to them or know them. And generally, they either inherit somebody else's uh, uh, background, somebody who ideally has died um, in, at an early age, but they can still step into their shoes, or uh, they create it from scratch, but they come up with sufficient detail for it to be granular enough and believable enough. And then they learn this uh, 
identity backstory over years of, of training and rehearsing. So she was one of these, one of the actual most colorful ones that we've ever discovered. You don't get to discover an illegal spy that often. It's, uh, it's very rare. The last time that actually illegals en masse were found out was about 12 years ago when the FBI rounded up uh, about 10 of them in the United States and uh, sent them to Russia in exchange for several uh, human rights activists and spies for the West being released by Russia. But then after that, for a gap of 12 years, there's only been one discovered, which was coincidentally about three months ago. And that was a Brazilian passport holder who was also a Russian Jerry spy. He was, in fact, a colleague of, uh, of Maria Della. So Maria Della was a Russian spy, spent more than a decade in Western Europe and was able to infiltrate, um, I would say, some of the high top circles of officers and, and uh, staff at the NATO headquarters in Naples, Italy. And that's the nutshell description of who she is. Great. And before we dive into her remarkable story that you and your investigative partners uncovered, can you give us a sense of the scale of the illegals program from what we know uh, and what has been unearthed? And maybe um, you, you gave some some examples, but you know, if there are any other infamous examples of illegals and, and their handiwork. Nobody knows the exact scale. Um, what we do have a sort of an understanding of is that it's generally the SVR, the Service for Foreign Intelligence of, uh, of uh, Russian, the Russian intelligence operators that prepares these spies. SVR is uh, part of what used to be the KGB. And in the 70s and 80s, the KGB were running the illegal program. It's rare to find another agency, the military intelligence agency, GRU, run such spies. And they would obviously be expected to be profiling more on military or trying to infiltrate the military circles, uh, military installations. And that's what we see with Maria Della. The previous such spy that was outed, as I said a couple of months ago, was also trying to infiltrate something with relevance to military matters or military interests. That was um, the uh, person who traveled under Brazilian passport and was able to get an internship job at the uh, ICC, the International Criminal Court in The Hague. And his job was going to be actually working as an analyst on evidence of Russian war crimes in Ukraine. So again, you see uh, a pr proximity to the military domain there. Well, the last colorful spy, female spy from the illegal program run by the SVR was this uh, redhead woman who was uh, uh, detained as part of that exchange or swap of 10 spies. That was uh, 10 years or 12 years ago. I even forget her name, to be, to be honest. But uh, she went back to Russia and became a prominent TV personality and totally uh, acknowledging her espionage work in the past and uh, received several awards from President Putin for that. So yeah, you don't get a lot of them. My guesstimate would be that the SVR are running at this very moment probably about a hundred of them around the world. But the jury, the military intelligence, is not running more than 20 or by now 18 because kind of we, we've disabled two of them already. Well, I didn't know that about the spy who became a, a TV host. I guess if you're outed, you might as well capitalize on it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about Maria Della, but uh, when she was outed and brought, well, she wasn't outed, but she was perceived to be burned and brought back to Russia. She was put in charge of Russians, Russia's pension fund, which is a very ironic thing for a, a spy who's retired. <laughs> <laughs> the afterlives of the Russian spies is, could be another podcast. 
Yes, exactly. I think, as is often the case with with Bellingcat investigations, the the methods and and the story of uncovering the story in itself is interesting. So I'm curious where you started the trail, how you first got tipped off that this person is not perhaps who she says she is. Well, each of our investigations start with the previous investigation because uh, there's so much residual data or residual understanding and knowledge of tradecraft of spies from each of our stories that actually we, we try to leverage it for further stories. So what we knew from the investigation into the poisonous of the scruples in 2018, where we were able to out the uh, uh, four of the people from the GRU who were involved with that attempt at killing a former agent of uh, Russia's military intelligence, was that these guys tend to use consecutive passports in their undercover identities. And the reason for that is kind of, it's not necessarily laziness, but it's that the GRU are getting an annual package of passport forms. It's about 200 of them. They're getting them straight from the minting press of the uh, state passport mint in Russia. And they can fill in the names and, and the photographs as they want them. But they have consecutive passport numbers, right? So once we discovered this this uh, sort of a glitch in their system, we were able to go and find new spies by just trying to look in all kinds of travel databases, passport numbers that are consecutive to the ones we've already identified of spies. So we, we found five different batches of numbers that belong to the spy sequence. So whenever we get a new database from wherever, um, we start looking for more numbers that we may not have found before. So it was back last November that I got access to a great new database, which was um, hacked by the uh, a unit calling themselves the Belarus Cyber Partisans. These are young kids, hackers who cooperated with some of the former members of the Belarus security services who were very unhappy with the clamp down on the pro-democracy movement in 2020 in Belarus. You may remember there were a lot of people uh, crushed by, by, by vehicles, by the, uh, by the security police, many people killed. So a lot of these security people who were unhappy with what they were told to do, they, they left the country. Apparently, they leaked part of their keys for the database of the border crossing of Belarus to hackers. So these guys shared it with us, and we started looking for, well, our favorite pastime, my favorite pastime in the evening is when I get a new database to look for consecutive numbers from the known batches. So I found quite a few male spies. And how we know that they're spies, we we look them up in other residential databases and they don't exist there. So these are people who only have a cover identity for their travel, but they don't have necessarily an identity within Russian residential databases. So found a few male spies. And then I came across this very, very odd Hispanic-sounding name, Maria Della Rivera Kufeld. And, well, that, that, that was a stopper. I mean, they, you have to look into that deeper because you don't get um, a foreign name, uh, let alone a female foreign name, as part of the GRU spies sequence of passports. So that was the first thing. Second thing, well, obviously, what anybody would do is look up that name in, um, on, on Google. That's what I did. And I did find that name in a 2006 deposition by the migration office in Peru to the Congress of Peru, where she was mentioned as one of three fake personas who had tried to get Peruvian citizenship and were uh, kind of found out and they didn't get the passports. 
So that was an extremely interesting lead. I mean, it, not only did we have that person as part of the passport sequence of known to belong to GRU, but also we know that 2006, she didn't get a cover identity that was going to be perfect uh, if she had gotten a Peruvian passport. So we spent a lot of time trying to get the original documents from the Peruvian uh, government, and we did a uh, Freedom of Information Act request, and we were able to ultimately get some more background on how what happened in 2006. We found out that somebody applied, a lawyer applied on behalf of Maria Adela, claiming that uh, here's her birth certificate issued by a church in 1978. Here's her mother's birth certificate. She's Peruvian. Here's her father's birth certificate. He's a German uh, from Bremen called uh, Kufeld. He's dead. His, her mother is dead. And uh, she's trying to get her citizenship papers back. So that's what she did or a lawyer did for her. But some smart guy at the migration office had a concern. He seemed to remember that this church that issued her passport was actually built later than the birth certificate date. So he called the uh, the the, uh, the clergyman who's running that church at the moment and asked, uh, well, that was 2006, asked, when was your church created? And the answer was 1987. So that's a full nine years after the birth certificate was issued. So that that, that kind of triggered a red alarm and they uh, stopped the issuance of the passport and this whole case was transferred to the prosecution in Peru. Okay, so we knew that this attempt to get a cover identity was actually quite similar to the typical method, modus operandi of the jury, where they look for actual um, data from uh, uh, probably kids who die at birth or, or, or somehow else disappear from the registrars of uh, a Latin American country, and then they claim that, that citizenship later. But they had made this very big mistake of like misdating the birth certificate. So that was when we got comfort that most likely this is a spy and not just a random innocent foreigner who had received a Russian passport from that range. Then the next thing we found was that she had a, uh, or a person with that name had registered a trademark for jewelry uh, design in France in 2012 and then in Italy in 2013. So we started looking at that and um, we kind of focused our search for Adela on these two countries. And uh, ultimately, tracing the name of the, the jewelry company, we found the website for that jewelry company, which was linked to a Facebook account. And the Facebook account, was well, the jewelry company was called Serene. And we found a Facebook account under the name Adela Serene. And that was her. She had a lot of photographs of herself. And we could immediately see that she had become somewhat, something of a fixation on the Naples um, celebrity or high life scene. She was hosting a lot of parties. She had her own club. She had her own boutique store for what she called uh, jewelry designed by herself. And um, she had a lot of friends. What we found through her Facebook account was actually many American friends. And that was interesting. And that was explained even further when we found a photograph of her on the website of the local chapter, the Naples chapter of an international charitable organization called the Lions Club. And we found that she had been the secretary since 2014 of the Lions Club Naples chapter, which was attended solely, exclusively by 
NATO staff and NATO personnel. So she was the only non-NATO person running that organization as a secretary. So at this point, you can imagine that we were all like, okay, this is clear. This must be military intelligence. This must be a great success case of penetration NATO. So let's find out more context. And then the rest was literally us trying to reach out to the people that she had befriended and trying to extract a confession from them about what they had told her. It's a pretty remarkable trail. And I like what you said about your favorite pastime. Who among us hasn't settled down with a cup of tea and, and combed through uh, Belarusian leaked uh, databases? If you, if you haven't, you've lost a lot of fun. <laughs> exactly. I'm, you know, I'm curious what you said at the end there about, you know, once you were, were fairly certain about her real identity as a, as a spy and you reached out to some of her acquaintance, acquaintances in Naples, what did you find out? Did anyone admit to divulging certain military secrets or any other personal relationships with her? We didn't get a lot of responses when we approached people, cold called them on the Facebook uh, Messenger. One person that was responsive was an older woman who we saw had interacted on Facebook um, over the years, uh, referencing meetings that they had had in, in London. So we looked up this woman, um, found out she was the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine UK. That made the story even more glamorous, you might say. So um, I did everything possible to find her number. I mean, she's not uh, she's uh, in, semi, in semi-retirement at the moment. So difficult to get hold of her. But ultimately, I was able to find her number. I called her. I had a very interesting initial call with her. I said, well, Marcel, um, I have some bad news to report. I think over the years, you may have been a close friend to somebody who actually is a Russian spy. And she goes, really? I knew it. How did you find out? And I, I went like, okay, well, well, let's start with my question first. When did you meet her? And Marcel Darji, she goes, her? Oh, then I must have known two Russian spies. So she actually didn't didn't think of her. She think, thought of somebody else. But anyway, so then we had a, like a, an hour chat where she told me um, that there was always something strange and mysterious about Adela, but she never thought she was a spy. Uh, she thought she was just a, a person with a very strange background. And why was it strange? Because the cover story that she was telling everybody, including her uh, her friend Marcel was that she had been of Peruvian descent. She was born in Peru to a German father and a Peruvian mother, but her father deserted the family when they were when she was very uh, an infant, and then her mother traveled to Soviet Russia, where else for the Olympics in 1980, and that something happened back at home that caused her mother to immediately go back, but she left her two-year-old daughter Maria Adela in the caring hands of a Soviet family. And she stayed there and was brought up by this adoptive family over the next years. She didn't have a good relation with the family, uh, with, with her adoptive parents, she said, which explained why she suddenly wanted to be out of Russia and she was hop, uh, globe-trotting Europe uh, and trying to get a passport and to never go back to Russia. So that's kind of the cover story that she came up with or she was given uh, by 2008, 2009, when she was already in Europe. So this was very important because we could not have known this cover story had we not gotten at least some of her friends to talk. Then uh, we heard from other people uh, who ultimately responded that she had befriended uh, them, uh, mostly in the context of 
telling them um, that she's the new secretary of this charity club, that she was very vocal, very helpful. She wanted to uh, reinvigorate this club, which had kind of gone into uh, disuse over the years. She volunteered to pay people's membership fees if they were not willing to or couldn't. And then she kind of became this unifying factor for charitable uh, work in, in Naples. Um, she was invited to all the NATO parties. She was a regular feature at the uh, Marine Bowl, at the NATO Bowl, and so on and so forth. She befriended people with significant access to confidential information, such as, for example, the uh, person who was in charge of the data security at NATO, uh, a person who had the position of Inspector General and was essentially legal counsel to the uh, American Army, and several other people, such as the um, NATO photographer, who people who you would expect would have had access to confidential material. Nobody remembers her actually being on the base, on the NATO grounds, but she was at a lot of events where NATO staff were present, and she did have a social life that allowed her to visit a lot of this, uh, a lot of these uh, staff members and officers from NATO, and they visited her home as well. So we don't know what she might have stolen in terms of data. Uh, and if she did, I mean, one would expect that over 10 years, almost 10 years, she would have had access to, to well, somebody's left-behind laptop. But even if that were not true, the risk of somebody knowing intimately so many officers at NATO and being able to create a profile for them or to pass on such raw information to the jury profilers, that is a, a significant security risk because that's how people are recruited, based on their profiles, based on their weaknesses, based on, for example, somebody not being able to pay their membership fee um, for the charitable organization. And then the jury would know that that person is in financial trouble at that particular moment, and so on and so forth. So we don't know exactly what the damage is. We just know that the risk is very substantial. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And um, I think, don't worry, Marcel, we all have that, that one friend who we all suspect is a Russian spy, so I wouldn't be, <laughs> be too heartbroken there. But uh, I'm curious, we don't, as you said, have an indication of, of the extent of the security breach or whether one even occurred. But did you have any sense that NATO or any of its allies, intelligence services had knowledge of, of this Russian asset? I'm personally pretty convinced they did not. Of course, in retrospect, if you approach them now, they will say, oh, maybe we did, and maybe we just allowed her to play around. But there's one 
symptom that shows they didn't. And it's the fact that all of the people we talked to, among them her closest friends, uh, well, people who thought they were close friends, apparently they weren't because she was a different person, they were never approached by NATO security officer or by anybody, by the FBI, uh, even though some of them went back to the United States and got into politics and uh, essentially would have been seen as a security risk if NATO or the FBI had known that they had been so close to a Russian spy. But none of them had been approached, questioned, interrogated. They they learned about Adela's uh, affiliation with Russia, with Russian intelligence from us. The last section of the story uh, is subtitled Mission Success or Mission Aborted. Can you tell me a bit about how and why Maria Adela's life in Naples abruptly came to an end? We can only guess on that point. Um, But what we do see is that she was recalled or decided to go back to Russia. Uh, Usually they don't decide on their own, so probably she was called back by the center in late 2018. And that happened just after we had published a series of investigations actually outing this tendency for the Russian intelligence to use consecutive passports. And without us knowing, we had published sort of a very cryptic message at the end of one of our stories where we said, okay, we have just identified these two passports that belong to to GRU officers, and we're working on others that will be disclosed in future investigations. So that was a general statement. We're working on that. But apparently the Russian military intelligence thought that we knew everybody else. So she had had a passport from that range. In fact, she had had three different passports because they're replaced every couple of years. All of them were from ranges known to belong to the GRU. So you can imagine the sort of the, the shock and the fear at the GRU headquarters after we had published that story. In fact, late that night, because later we were able to get the phone records of the head of the illegals program, we saw that um, he continued talking to his colleagues through through the night uh, of, if I remember correctly, September September 14th, when we published that story. So one of the theories that she was recalled because they believed she was burned. We do know, however, that she was sent to at least one further trip abroad in 2019, but probably under a yet different identity. I mean, she had developed such a great array of contacts, not only in Naples, mind you. She traveled to Germany, um, Austria, uh, Switzerland. She had annual trips uh, for a couple of weeks at a time to Bahrain, ostensibly to attend a luxury fair. But Bahrain is also the one Middle East country that has an American base with almost 7,000 troops there. So they can't just close that chapter forever. So they probably tried to use her despite the the exposure, but by using a new identity after that, which we're still figuring out. But the interesting thing is what happened after she went back to Russia. Well, she was given this job, which I don't believe is a real job, but just to cover sort of a placeholder for her to be doing something uh, in Russia while she anticipates her next uh, call. And that is a, well, a a, a top uh, accountant at the Russia Pension Fund in Moscow. And we were able to figure this out because that's the address to which the real person whom we outed um, as being the person behind Maria Della was ordering food online during working hours. So 
that's how we knew that she works for that particular central office of the pension fund. And can you speak to a little bit about how you finally confirmed her her actual identity in in terms of facial recognition software and, and matching of photos on social media profiles? I thought that was a really interesting bit toward the end. Yeah, uh, we spent most of the last almost a year of investigation trying to find the real identity. It was relatively easy to find out the profile of the spy and what she did and the, the risk, uh, the breaches uh, and potential breaches. But finding her real identity was harder than any other spy search we've done before, we've had before. Uh, they had really covered her tracks very well. We tried the most obvious approach, which was face recognition, face search, because we had a number of good quality photographs of uh, Maria Della from her Facebook account, but also from her friends who sent them to us. But that did not result in any discovery in Russian social media or even in Russian closed databases because we found a whistleblower who was able to search with that photograph of Maria Della in the Russian password database. What we did get, however, was uh, almost 100 close matches that were not like very high. They were not high enough to say, yeah, that's her. But they might have been her. And one of these matches from the Russian passport database had a very old photograph, a black and white photograph from a person who appeared 14 or 15 years old and barely resembling Maria Della. We thought this is potentially an interesting lead because why would somebody's passport photograph be so old unless that person kind of left Russia shortly after being issued that passport. So we started looking at that person in more detail. We had the name, we had the birth date. The birth date was actually four years younger than the fake identity birth date. So uh, the real person was born in 1982. Her name was uh, Olga Kolobova. Uh, so the one thing that we found in Russian databases that kind of gave us a pretty high confidence that that might be her was the fact that this person, Olga, had existed in Russian databases until the year 2007. She had kind of uh, paid traffic fines. She had uh, registered an actual uh, alcohol shop in her name. And uh, and then suddenly, in 2007, all traces of her disappear. And the same person reappears with a very hectic online and digital life in November 2018, which is exactly when uh, Maria Della comes back to Russia. Okay, so that, that hole in the middle was very, very telling. And then we looked at this new activity, new digital traces from 2018, and we found a lot of things that actually matched the possible profiles of the two. For example, one of the first things that happened in 2018 is Olga Kolobova bought herself a car, and that car was an Audi 3. And that was exactly the model that Maria Della was driving based on her Instagram posts under that identity in Italy. Then we found that uh, we knew that uh, Maria Della had a cat and she was very fond of the cat and she would have taken the cat back to Russia with her. And we found that Olga, the Russian woman, also had uh, a pet and she was calling a, a veterinary clinic which specializes in cats quite often. And then both of them, uh, well, because we found a social media account of Olga Kolobova, which didn't have a single photo of her, which is also interesting. She had like uh, 100 photos, but never of herself. 
we did find other similarities. For example, both the fake identity and the real identity were posting uh, numerous photos of ro uh, rose bouquets. So it had passion for flowers and particularly for roses. And they did a lot of close-ups that were very similar to one another. And last but not least, um, there was a hand on one of the bouquets on the Russian profile uh, that was very, very similar to the hand. I mean, actually, we didn't realize before that hands are so unique that you can do identification of a person through hand comparison, uh, similar to what you can do with face comparison. But last, the last kind of smoking gun was the profile picture on Olga Kolobova's WhatsApp account, because that was the same picture, not even the same face, but the same picture that was used by Adela on her Facebook and Instagram accounts. So then we knew, okay, we got her and, uh, and we can go to print. I think as this conversation so far has demonstrated the, the story that you and your colleagues uncovered has a stranger than fiction quality to it with luxury jewelry and a fashion magazine editor and, and all the twists and turns. You know, you've been doing this type of work for, for some time. I'm curious what surprised you about this story, if you had any favorite anecdotes uh, in the course of your investigation. Well, I think for me, the I, 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 to be honest, I think this whole story can be a multi, multi-season uh, Netflix uh, film because there are so many little things that I have to just omit to make the story consistent and logical. But for example, I think for me, the shocker was when we discovered by reverse image search that this expensive, quote-unquote, jewelry that uh, Maria Della was taking to all kinds of exhibitions and uh, was uh, sort of boasting was Naples homegrown jewelry was in fact purchased off of AliExpress and Alibaba uh, and other uh, Chinese uh, wholesale sites for literally pennies, I mean, a couple of dollars each. And she was able to convince everybody that this was very expensive jewelry. So that was one. I mean, also a shocker was when we found out that she had gifted a lot of that jewelry to uh, officers from the NATO base. And we kind of scratched our head and thought, wait a second, jewelry gifting jewelry to NATO wives, to NATO officers, uh, NATO husbands, uh, that doesn't sound right. I mean, what did that were bugged? That's still something we're looking at. Um, and then I would say the story with her husband, we, which we haven't mentioned on the podcast, but that's also very interesting, uh, was extremely curious because she never told anyone that she, was, she had a boyfriend or that she was uh, going to get married, but suddenly she told her friends, oh, I just got married. Uh, that was at a time when she desperately needed a passport, a, a European passport, in order for her to no longer have to show around her Russian passport because that raised some concerns, obviously. Um, so she married somebody, a young guy, um, and uh, that was in 2012. And less than a year later, she told everybody that her husband died from lupus in Moscow. And that was very hard to believe, even to her friends, because, well, many of them had friends who were doctors who immediately told them that actually a young man uh, who was less than 30 years old at the time is very, very unlikely to die of lupus. So this must be something else. So uh, that is a mystery inside a uh, an enigma that we're looking at. And I'm pretty sure that this will result in another investigation uh, that we will publish as soon as we've cracked it. Yeah, I look forward to the, the Netflix special. I'll start casting the role of Maria uh, in my head. 
but I, I want to go back to some of the methods that you used, and I wanted to ask kind of a meta question about it. When you discovered the the glitch in the system uh, with the near consecutive passport numbers, and you decide to publish that alongside your investigation, I think it's you know a good practice which Bellingcat does to also publish the methods for verification purposes. How do you think about that trade off between you know doing that good practice, but then also sort of exposing uh, and probably you know ruining that method of investigation for for future attempts to uncover Russian spies? Well, it's a it's a trade off, but it's an easier one for us than it would be for an intelligence service or law enforcement. Uh, our goal is transparency, and if the side effect of that transparency is reducing crime and government crime in particular, then it's all for the better. And in this case, we think that that is the net end result. In investigating this group of uh, jury officers who traveled on nearly consecutive passports, we discovered nearly 40 of them who had traveled around the world, primarily Europe, uh, literally blowing things up, killing people, being not necessarily even targeted in their killings, because in the UK, they killed a completely random woman who had picked up one of their Novichok uh, dispensers and, and thought it was a perfume bottle and she died uh, within days. So we actually, by publishing this, and the knowledge that, that we know about this and therefore everybody knows about the passport sequence, we, we have disabled this whole unit of 40 killers um, because they can never be sent again because the Russian jury would expect that their faces and uh, uh, fingertips are already known to all security agencies. So I think that is an example of the net result that is positive. Yes, the negative consequence is that Russian intelligence are able to upgrade their resources, but this comes at a cost. They will have to now find new people. They'll have to uh, try a new method. They'll have to be less lazy. (laughs) And uh, we see that they tried that even in 2019. There were a couple of cases where people from the from this list of 40 that I just mentioned, were sent to Europe with new non-consecutive passport numbers and with biometric passports, uh, which contained fingertips and so on and so forth. But they were turned back at the border because uh, France, in this particular case, already had these people under surveillance because of our publications. So I think we've caused a lot of problems. And yes, we've We've made them think twice and probably they're doing something more sophisticated now, but I'm pretty sure we'll figure that one as well. I'm curious how this particular story has changed, if at all, how you view the capacity of the Russian intelligence or military intelligence agency or or, or Russian tradecraft in general. I think that all of our investigations have chipped away at their capacity over the last four or five years. I think part of the impact is lack of or loss of certainty about what we know, about what the world knows. And this definitely results in lessening of the activity because they don't know what is known. And I think the we've also encouraged other uh, investigators, including law enforcement, to actually follow the same path and to discover their own things, which we haven't discovered because we don't have access to their databases. So I can't quantify it, but if we alone have been responsible for disabling about 45 of these spies, I think the cumulative effort by 
law enforcement and intelligence services, counterintelligence services of Europe and, and, and America probably has resulted in disabling hundreds. So I would say that this features pretty high on Putin's kind of uh, peeve list. And uh, I'm pretty sure we're not uh, among his favorite people. And speaking of that, I'm curious about you, Christo. Um, this work, I think, obviously comes with an element of risk. And I'm wondering if you've come under threat and, and how you deal with, with those kinds of threats. Yeah, well, the real threat is one that you will not know about until it materializes. Uh, but there are clearly indications that uh, that there are threats. I mean, I get uh, not only hate mail, but thinly veiled threats from uh, uh, Russians, but also from pro-Russian Westerners. Uh, uh, I, I got a couple of days ago, I got a fan mail from a, a German nutcase who has been sending, I think by this time, by this moment, more than 55 mails that uh, end up with a quote. And this time the quote is something from Arthur Conan Doyle. I would like to destroy the world, but I'll settle for destroying you. So these are disconcerting messages, uh, you might imagine. Other people would send me messages saying, I know where your wife works, I know where your son goes to school, and I know where you go to have dinner on Friday evening. So you get those a lot. But I think these are relatively benign because if these were real intents by Russian security services, then they would not be so verbose. And... Uh, until this war started, I thought that Russia had some reputation cost and they would not go after journalists. Um, but with the war starting and with the clampdown on Russian journalists uh, and, and attempts to arrest them or arrest of journalists and then attempts to poison opposition figures in Russia, I can see how they might not think of their reputation and go after people at Bellingcat. So it is a concern, uh, but we're trying not to let that concern kind of drive our agenda and uh, we, uh, we 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 have good relations with police wherever we live and uh, the police have agreed to provide us uh, sort of security whenever we're going to interviews or meetings with people we're not familiar with but that's about the the degree of our self-protection uh, measures and speaking of your agenda you mentioned a few threads throughout this conversation but where do you see this investigation going next uh, I, I guess without revealing too much? Uh, two directions. One is we have found after we published that she had actually engaged with people and businesses outside of Italy uh, that may have risks to people's data. For example, she has established contacts with some insurance companies which have access to people's private data, including card insurance data. So this is another follow-up that we're working on. And then, obviously, as I said, one vector, one thread is what really happened with her husband and who really was he. Well, Krista, thank you so much for, for joining us, for sharing the details of the investigation. Uh, I look forward to subsequent parts and the inevitable dramatized series on a streaming service. So thank you so much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. And while you're at it, grab some Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.